Please turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. I said this uh, in the first service, and I'll say it again. Every, almost everything I'm going to say this morning um, has been said already. <laughs> and that's, uh, that is the value of music that is filled with truth. And um, so what Mike just did is preach to us, and I'm very thankful for his work. This is a weird time of year. I've been in stores many times this time of year. You're walking along, you're in the, you know, the toy aisle at Walmart or something, and you hear this sound coming through the speakers, and the sound says something like, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. And you're standing in Walmart, and they're piping in this music that is worship to God Almighty. And why are they doing that? Is it, it's because Walmart's a Christian company, and is that what it is? No. They're using worship to get you to buy stuff. That is what they're doing. They're softening you up to get you in the the holiday spirit so that you'll buy more stuff. That's the only reason why they play Christmas music in the stores at Christmas time, especially music like that. But it's true. So it's amazing to be walking around in, in Walmart hearing gospel truth piped through the speakers um, even if it's, you know, Nat King Cole singing it, it's still true. So that's weird. Uh, we have families that we go back to, and of course my family is perfectly normal, but your families are weird. <laughs> yeah, right. One of the first times my wife came to my house before we were married was probably at Christmas time, and she was freaked out, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> but we go home to our families, and it's weird. My brother tells me, the, who was who a former police officer, is uh, Corey here today? I don't see Corey. He was also a police officer. They tell us that this time of year is actually the nastiest time of year when it comes to domestic disputes, which can be the most dangerous for police officers. Um, people get nasty because they're together, because of expectations, because of memories, because of depression, because of all kinds of things. So it's a weird time of year. And the passage that is in front of us is a passage that I hope will take all that crud and brush it aside, blow it aside, so that we can remember what's really going on. Read with me Galatians 4, 4 4-7. The Apostle Paul says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. 
Because you were sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This passage contains one of the most concise statements of the person and work of Jesus Christ anywhere in Scripture. What, who is Jesus and what has he done? This passage summarizes that amazingly. And whenever we see a passage like this begin with the word but, we should anticipate marvelous things are coming. This is the pattern of Scripture in many places. When you see the word but in a passage like this, think this is going to be good. Remember what Ephesians 2 says. Ephesians 2, 1 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But then verse 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. But God. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there's a setup, there's something awful, but God, and then something wonderful. And that's the way this passage works. And this passage is really easy to divide up as we look at it. Really, it's divided up into when, what, who, how, and why. So what's the when? Look at verse 4. But when... The fullness of the time came. The coming of Jesus Christ is the event of history. It is the climax. It is the point. So what Jody said a couple of weeks ago at the sing-along. He said that all of history really has everything to do with that, with Jesus Christ coming. We are so... We, we completely unbe- disbelieve this. We do not believe this at all. We think that life is about big events like nations and armies and battles and kings. Or, because we're Americans, we think that life is about me. And my little life. Me being at the center of it. And God everywhere blasts that to pieces. When the fullness of the time came, everything led up to this. Everything flows out of this. We recognize this in Scripture. We see it everywhere, but we even recognize it in in our calendar, right? Everything is divided up into before Christ and year of our Lord, A.D. And even though people are trying to erase that, you know, with, uh, what is it, uh, B.C.E. and C.E., right? Taking out Christ. It ain't going to work. How do you wipe away 1,500 years of, of history like that? We will always speak of before Christ and year of our Lord. And Scripture is filled with this. Remember what Shakespeare says in one of his plays where he says, All of life is a stage. And we just come out and we spend our time on it, we act out our part, and then we go away. And there's truth to that. 
but it's not our stage, it's God's stage. He created all things, all things are made by him and for him. Jesus Christ has been exalted as head over all things for the church, it says in Scripture. He is the center of everything. When Jesus first came, he says this in Mark 1, verse 14. It says, Now after John, that's John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, Jesus came into into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, quote, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The time is fulfilled. Everything led up to this. This is the point of all of history. Here it is. It all comes down to this. In Romans 5, 6, the Apostle Paul says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time. In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, the Apostle Paul says this. When he's speaking of the Old Testament, he says, Now these things, these things in the Old Testament happened to them, to those people in the Old Testament, happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. This is it. Jesus Christ has come. The end of the ages has come. This is it. What in your life acknowledges that? Jesus coming is the climax. It's the point. Your story fits into that. It's meaningless apart from that. Every detail of your life fits into that. And you will not understand your life. You won't understand your sufferings. You won't understand anything unless you understand that. So God says, when the fullness of the time came, that's the when. Now what about the what? When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son. That's what he did. He sent forth his son. And that takes on incredible meaning when you realize the who. God sent forth his son. That is one of the most succinct summaries of the gospel you'll find anywhere. God sent forth his son. Now there are amazing things to notice here in those few words. First of all, the son is eternal. God sent him forth He was there with God, and God sent him forth. He has always been there with God, and God sent him forth. He didn't create him, he didn't make him, and then send him forth. He was there with him, and he sent him forth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And God sends him forth. And this also tells us that the Son is God. God sent his Son. He is equal with God. God sent God. Now, there's something bigger here that we, that it's very easy for us to miss. God sent forth his son. 
Who is the main actor in that um, clause? Who's doing, who's doing the action? God is. And we know this is God the Father, right? Because he sends forth his Son, so it must be speaking of God the Father. God the Father is the central figure here. He is the actor. He is the one doing the action. He is the one who sends forth his Son. You could almost say, in a sense, Jesus, the Son, is passive here. He's the one who is being sent, right? And this is what Scripture says everywhere. John 3.16, right? We know this verse so well that we don't know it at all. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And we think that's a statement about how wonderful Jesus is. But it's not, is it? I mean, yes, it is. But it's not. Because it's God who sent forth his son. It's it's God who gave his son. It's a statement of the large-hearted love of God the Father. In the book of John, Jesus says over and over and over again, by my count, at least 18 times, something like this, the Father sent me. God sent me. The Father sent me. I have come because the Father sent me. Why is that important? We have it in our minds so often that Jesus comes, there's a dilemma in heaven, you've got the mean, nasty father who's harsh and unkind and and stringent, and then you've got these sinners, and something's got to be done. So Jesus says, oh, wait a minute, I know, I'll, I'll do something, I'll fix it, I'll step in. And of course, that's nowhere in Scripture. It is God the Father who sends God the Son. It is God the Father who is the central figure. He is the actor. In 1 John verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 9, it says this. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And verse 14 says, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now think about this. Christmas time. Who do we think about at Christmas time? We think about Jesus and, 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 of course, Jesus as what? Little baby. <clears throat> and who else do we think about? What? Mary. That's right. We think of the baby and the mother. Where's the father? Where's the father? Well, there's Joseph, but that's not what I mean, is it? Where's the father? Where is the Father, God, who, it's his idea to send forth his Son. It's his initiative. It's his action. God shows his love for us by sending forth his Son. How is it that we think of Jesus and Mary, but not God the Father? 
We'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. All right. So when the fullness of time came, what? God sent forth his Son. Who? God the Father sent forth his Son, his eternal Son. How? What did that look like? It says two things. Number one, born of a woman. So Jesus Christ was fully God. God sent forth his Son, but he is also fully man. And this is one of those... Four words, place where four words, this thing is packed with, with meaning. Think about what we're supposed to think about here. What are we supposed to think about when we read that? Born of a woman. Okay, so what about um, Isaiah seven fourteen? Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and she'll call his name Emmanuel. We're supposed to think about that when we read born of a woman. All that meaning is packed into that. A virgin will bear a child and and will call his name God with us. Jesus Christ, sent from God, born of a woman. What else are we supposed to think about? Something older than that. We sung about it this morning in one one of the hymns. You remember? Eve, the seed of the woman. So Adam and Eve disobey God, Adam and Eve, who are real, a real man and a real woman, not mythology, not mist and vapor, but you could have walked up to Adam and touched him, right? That Adam and Eve, real, particular, historical man and woman in a garden with trees in it and a snake, and they eat the fruit, and in the, in the cursing of God, when God comes down and, and pronounces his curse against man, against woman, against creation, against the serpent, while he's cursing the serpent, he says this. He says, I'm going to send a seed, a child, an offspring of the woman, and he will crush your head. We should all think of that when we read this, born of a woman. This is what God has said would always happen. This is the fulfillment of this. Born of a woman. Finally, the seed of the woman has come. So, behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. But there's something even more basic than that. This phrase, this This line, born of a woman, is a graphic way to declare Jesus' identity with us. Literally, this is born, this says born out of a woman. It is a very graphic way of of stating the literal birth of Jesus Christ. Born out of a woman. Now, how many of you have been present at a birth other than your own? Because that doesn't count. You've seen it, right? You've seen it. What was it like? I've seen six of them. What was it like? Um, Well, (laughs) there was screaming, there were tears. 
there was blood. There was vomit. Was, is that what it was like when Jesus was born? Absolutely. Although, you know, Mary didn't have an epidural. I'm not against them. I'm just saying she didn't have one. So maybe much, much, much worse than what you've seen. Jesus, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. All the pain, all the sweat, all the tears, all the screaming, all the blood of a normal birth. We sang last night, for those of you who were at, this, at the reception last night, we sang, uh, was it away in the manger? Is that what we sang? You know, you know that line? The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Really? Seriously? Huh. Of course there was crying. Why would we, why would we say that? No crying he makes. That's, that's crazy. He was born of a woman. He was fully identified with us. You know, when Joseph, I'm assuming it was Joseph, delivered him, he had to smack him to get him to cry. Because that's what you have to do, because the baby's got to breathe. Of course he cried. So my point is, all of that stuff, Jesus Christ endured. Born of a woman. But secondly, he says this, born under the law. What does that mean? Well, it means simply, number one, Jesus was born a Jew. He was subject to all of the law that the Jews were subject to. Um, He was circumcised on the eighth day. And I'll guarantee you there was crying then, (laughs) right? All the diet, all the clothing restrictions, the clean, the unclean, the Sabbath, the, the sacrifices, the ceremonies, the festivals, every bit of it. Jesus Christ is born under that. It also means that he was born a man who was subject to God's law, just like every man born everywhere all the time is subject to God's law. Not above the law, but under it. So Jesus fully identified with us, both in the blood and the sweat and the tears of a normal human birth and in being under the law, being obligated to keep God's law, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? Verse 5. Verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Verse 5 so that he might redeem those who were under the law. What what does redeem mean? What does redeem presuppose? What it presupposes is slavery. You can't be redeemed unless you're a slave. 
Jesus Christ came to buy back men and women and children who were slaves. Slaves to what? Well, slaves to sin, slaves to death, slaves to their own lusts, slaves to the penalty that comes to those who are sinners. He came to buy us out of that. Jesus, the free man, took on the chains of the slave so that the slave could go free. The sinless man took on the sins of the sinner so that the sinner could live. The the living man took on death so that the dead could live. And all of those things describe every one of us. Sinners, slaves, dead. This is the purpose of Christ's coming. Galatians 3.13 says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The purpose of Christ's coming is to die. Remember what the angel said, we read it this morning in the liturgy, the Advent liturgy, the the angel says to Mary, you will call his name Jesus because... He will save his people from their sins. Jesus means something like Jehovah, that's the God of the Old Testament, is salvation. You're going to call him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. That's why he came. It's why he had to be born of a woman and born under the law. Hebrews 2 says this, Hebrews 2.14 Therefore, since the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He took on flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives." He had to be made like you. He had to take on a body. He had to be born of a woman and born under the law. Verse 17 of Hebrews 2 says this, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He was born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. That's wonderful. Think of that. He didn't have to do this. God the Father in love sent his Son to suffer so that you wouldn't have to, to keep the law because you couldn't, to die because you deserved to. He came to redeem those who were under the law. That's a big deal. But it's not the biggest deal. But that's where we always get stuck. We tend to focus on that part. But that's just a means to an end. Look at what the text says, verse 5, so that he might redeem those who are under the law 
that we might receive adoption as sons. So what's the point? The point of Jesus becoming a man is redemption, but the point of redemption is what? Adoption. Why is it that we never think of this? We think of the cross, and yes, we should think of the cross, and we should glory in it, and we should boast in it, but not in and of itself. It's because of what the cross does. And what the cross does is allow you to be adopted as a son of God. So that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. This is the ultimate blessing. This is the most important thing. That is the ultimate goal. God sent forth his son so that Sinners could be his sons. So that we can have God himself as our father. So that we can have access to the throne of grace with boldness. So that we can have all of the, of the benefits of having God as our father. To be pitied and protected and provided for and disciplined by God as a loving father. Why is it we never think of this? We are now sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. That is an idea that we will never be able to fully understand. The wonder of it is almost completely incomprehensible and unbelievable. And there's a, you catch a glimpse of the wonder of it in 1 John 3, 1. When John says, see, and, it, and it, it's lost in the translation, the wonder of it, but it's see what? manner of love, what, what kind of love could it possibly be that we would be called sons of God, children of God? So I said, that's an idea that we will never be able to fully understand, but it is more than an idea. It has to be more than an idea. It has to be an experience or it is not real. Because look at what he says, verse 6. This is the result of all of this. These are the implications. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So God sends forth His Son so that he can send forth the spirit of his son into the very center of who you are, into your heart. And when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit does something. He causes you to do something. When God sends his Holy Spirit into the heart of an adopted son of God, it produces experience. Do you see that? He sends forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. How can that happen and you not know it? How can that happen and you not notice it, experience it, taste it, feel it? What He's causing you to experience is the intimate love of the Father. 
and to respond to that love, calling out, crying out, Abba, Father. What does that word Abba mean? It means, it's, it's just the, the, the Aramaic word for Father. A lot is often made of this word. A lot of people say it's, it's like daddy, it's like dada, it's like, you know, the word the little child would say. So they, they, they make it almost a childish thing. But it's not childish. It's a word that an adult man who has a good relationship with his father would have said, would have called his father. Okay, it's not baby talk, but it's intimate talk. It's loving, it's warm, it's relationship. You know, it's kind of the opposite of what, um, when, when, a, when a son addresses his dad by father, does that seem weird to you? It seems cold, it seems formal, it seems kind of rigid, it seems distant. Hello, father. Right? This is not that. When, when I come home almost every day, and, and the older boys don't do this as much because they're dignified now and they're older and they don't, you know, they still do it somewhat. But the funniest thing is when I walk in the door and Elijah, the two year old, jumps up and bounces over and says, Hi, Pop! <laughs> I don't know where he got that. But that's what he says. Hi, Pop. And that's what this is. That's this. Intimate, warm. Familiar. But there's respect in it. Right? And honor. It's not a cold, formal title. It's a title of love. We either... Don't appreciate this, meaning we've heard it so much that we don't hear it anymore and it's, we yawn, or we don't believe it. I've, I speak to many people who literally don't believe this is true for them, and they're, some of you, you're Christians and you think, I know it says it, but I, really, me? Or you hate it, because there are many in this room who had awful fathers. You were abused awfully or neglected by your father. And so we don't taste the the weight of this at all. Those of you who hate this, some believe that they can be Christians but not call God Father. This passage says, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will call God Father. We, we flip everything around. And so let me say this to you if you've had an awful father or an absent father. You do not read God through the lens of your father, you read your father through the lens of the true father, God. And you see clearly what God the Father is like. God the Father is the kind of father who sends his son to die for sinners. That's what God the Father is like. 
And all of us had fathers, whether even if you had a good one, he failed. You look to God. Here's something else we do. Jake uh, Mensel mentioned to this, me, this to me after the last sermon, the last service, and I think he's right. We either don't appreciate this, that we are sons of the Father, this Abba Father, we kind of take it for granted. We don't believe it, or we don't believe it, or we hate it, or, and this is probably where most of us are, we sentimentalize it. So when we say Abba Father, what we really mean is Abba Mother. You understand? We don't want the weight. We don't want the authority. We don't want the dignity. We don't want the, the power of a father. What we really want is the warmth and the nurture and the softness and the warm cookies of a mother. But God is not your mother. He is your father. Why is the father absent from the Christmas stories? Why is it only the the baby and the mother? We don't like the father. Do we? Because what do fathers do? Good fathers. What do good fathers do? They discipline us. They tell us no. They shape us. They push us. But this says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is the sign of the Holy Spirit. If you don't know what it is to call out in your heart, Abba, Father, you cannot have the Holy Spirit. You don't. This sonship gives rise to all the other All of the obedience that God commands. Turn with me. Open your Bible if you have one. Open it up to Romans chapter 8. There's a lot of talk today of sonship in the church, in churches. And it's, it's, a lot of it's good. A lot of it is about remembering the truth of passages like this. But a lot of it is bad because it's, Soft. It leads people to think, yes, I'm a son. I don't have to worry about anything anymore. I'm a son. I'm in. I don't have to obey. There is no duty for me. There are no obligations. I'm a son. Well, Romans chapter 8 is the larger commentary on this Abba Father. The only other place where it appears in Scripture and look at what it says, Romans eight twelve. So then, brethren, we are under obligation. We have a duty. We are obligated. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. 
But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And when he says being led by the Spirit of God, he does not mean have visions and have warm feelings and have notions that maybe you should do this. That's not what he's talking about. Being led by the Spirit of God is being able to put your sin to death. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your body, you will live. Those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if, it says if, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So, the spirit of adoption is the spirit of obedience. It's not the spirit that says, hey, I'm a son of God. I don't, have to, I don't have to worry about it anymore. It's the spirit of obedience. The cry of Abba, Father, is a cry that, that leads to obedience. And by the way, look at that word, cry out, crying. He has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So many of us are timid when it comes to this truth. We're tentative, we're timid, we're scared of actually saying it. Yes, I know the Bible teaches and says that I'm a son of God, I guess. Okay, I guess I'll ha- I have to believe it. So I'll say it. Amen. That's what it says. Crying out. It's what Elijah does when he greets me at the door. Right? It's not, um, uh, Father, hi, Daddy, right? And all of you men who are good fathers know exactly what that's like, right? You walk into the door and the kids, you know, you can't get through the door sometimes because they're happy to see you and they're calling out, they're crying out, Abba, Father, Father, Dad, Pop. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is an experience. It's not an idea. Have you tasted it? Now, here's another implication. Verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. The difference between a slave and a son is that a slave can get kicked out. That is true. The slave can be removed The slave is a tentative relationship based on how well you do, but a son is an intimate, permanent relationship based on what God the Father has done. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Can we even begin to imagine what that means? An heir through God? An heir of what? An inheritance? What kind of inheritance? Ephesians 1.18 says, calls it the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. 
First Peter 1 Peter 1.4 says, An inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. Psalm 16.11, At your right hand there are pleasures forever. Can we even begin? Can we even begin to imagine? We stand to inherit everything that belongs to God. This passage is what Christmas is about. It's about a great God who in mercy sends His own eternal glorious Son into the world to be born of a woman and to take on all that it means to be a human, to be a man except sin. And this Son of God in the flesh lived as a perfect law keeper and died the awful death of a lawbreaker so that sinners like you and me could have real reason for happiness, real reason for hope, real reason for joy, real reason for good cheer that we sing about. He came to give us merciful redemption and intimate relationship and spiritual experience and free inheritance. If you are guilty, and every one of us here is guilty of breaking the law of God, He has come so that you could have merciful redemption. If you are lonely, He comes to give intimate relationship with God the Father. If you had a bad relationship with your Father here on earth, He gives you intimate relationship with your Father in heaven. Genuine, satisfying spiritual experience for the cold and the spiritually dead. Free and rich inheritance for the poor and destitute and empty. That is why Christ Jesus came. It's why God sent forth His Son. He came to make sinners into sons. And the only way you can benefit from that glorious work of Jesus Christ, the only way you can benefit from that mercy of God the Father, the only way you can become a son of God is to turn away from your own works, turn away from your rebellion, turn away from your lusts. This is what the Bible calls repentance. Turn away from it and turn to Jesus Christ by faith. Paul says in Galatians 3.26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. You are sons of God through faith. This is not an automatic thing that happens to you because you're born in America. You're sons of God by faith. Which means the only way for you to be a son of God is to embrace Jesus Christ by faith. Rest in what he has done. Lean on what he has done, not in what you can do. Put all of your hopes for being right with God and loved by God in what he has done, not in what you can do. And if you do that, if you have done that, then you can be free from your guilt and your loneliness and your coldness and your emptiness. You can be a son of God. You can know God as your father. Stop hating him. Let's pray together.